How would you describe yourself? Brown hair, blue eyes, tall, a widow's peak? Do you like to go out on weekends? Do you play tennis or video games? How long do you sleep? Imagine describing yourself using only data, information that can be scraped from any of the many devices you come into contact with every day. Imagine the history stored in your phone's mapping app, the pages you visit most online, the number of steps recorded by your Fitbit. Would you say it's a pretty rounded out picture of you? And on top of that, what does this image painted by data say about your interests and your relationships? This, more or less, is the quantified self. You, or at least everything about you that can be measured and recorded. I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones, and this is Radio Berkman. A group of PhD students interning at Microsoft Research this summer are looking into how technology captures our data and the complicated relationship we have with the corporations and organizations who create our digital world. Ifeoma Ajunwa is a PhD candidate at Columbia University, studying the implications of employers using big data to keep track of their employees' habits. And you've been looking this summer into categories under the quantified self. Uh, Yeah, so the quantified self movement, as you might know, is a movement really that advocates that all individuals log their daily lives. While this is now sort of bled over into the workplace, employers are now instituting both what is called workforce management using apps that track productivity and also instituting workplace wellness programs, which are programs designed to encourage workers to lead more healthy lives because that would then lower uh, healthcare costs for the corporation as well as supposedly or intendedly boost the productivity of the employee. So that's the bright side of what these technologies can do. But what, what are the things that you worry about? This is really a simple solution to a more complex issue, right, to a more complex problem. So the American lifestyle is an unhealthy one, right? We spend hours sitting, we spend hours not exercising, we spend hours eating the wrong foods, and we have an obesity problem. Uh, But the question is, is are wellness programs really the way to tackle that problem? Or is it really us as a society abdicating responsibility for creating a healthier lifestyle and putting pressure and responsibility on the individual worker um, to lead a healthy lifestyle despite the structural impediments to such a lifestyle uh, and despite the lack of infrastructure to enable such a lifestyle. And, and what have you seen in terms of like programs like this that are out in the wild, in the real world, being used so the EEOC has uh, gotten involved in certain rules for this. The, the EEOC? The, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It's a legal group, really, that governs what happens in the workplace to ensure that nothing discriminatory happens. And so the EEOC is actually very much behind wellness programs. The White House also is as well. But my concern is really the other side of this wellness programs. They collect your data, whether it's like measuring your weight, using BMI, which is actually a problematic standard, or collecting family medical histories. So the family medical histories actually is a gray area in the law because you have the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which is GINA, which prohibits employers from discriminating against a worker based on their genetic profile. But when you're collecting family medical histories, then you are actually collecting genetic information. So this, as you see, is one area that wellness programs can be problematic because it does open the door 
uh, for companies to get around existing anti-discrimination laws. Yeah, and you get you get things like surveillance. You were telling a story about. Were you, were you telling the story about the app? Yes, I'd love for you to tell that story like really quickly. Yeah. So wellness programs are just really one side of of a multi-faceted really cube, I should say, because the other facet of the quantified worker right is the tracking of workers in their non-work lives. So the story that uh, is most recently making the rounds is of a woman who sued her employer, who uh, fired her as a result of her deleting an app the employer had installed on her phone. So the woman was told about this app when it was installed in her phone as a means of tracking her movements while she was working for the employer and as a means really of keeping her on call. But she was also told that she could turn off the app when she was not working and that it would then no longer track her, which turned out to be false. Because even though she turned off the, the, the app, it still could track her movements. And she learned this because her, then, her boss then recounted to her uh, her movements uh, during the weekend, as well as even told her exactly how fast she was driving while she was off work. That's very so, creepy. Yeah, it's very creepy. And it's uh, really a huge invasion of privacy. That is really part of the, I guess, uh, quantification of the worker. And, and as I said before, this isn't really new. Ford also used to have detectives that would go and surveil its um, assembly line workers in the off work hours. And the detectives were uh, intent on discovering which employee drank too much or gambled, and then those employees would subsequently be fired. What is new, however, is that the corporations don't need detectives anymore. Now they can just employ apps. <laughs> and yeah, it's so much more easy now. So it, yeah, so what's new, it's so much easier and it's so much more invasive because now you don't have a detective following you around outside your house, you have an app that's with you everywhere, your house, your friend's house, everywhere. So the technology has really raised surveillance to a different level of invasiveness. Cool. Well, thank you very much. And I wish you luck this summer. Thank you very much. Ifioma Ajunwa is researching how employers use the quantified self. Her essay on the potential illegal implications of using family medical histories was published in the New York Times Room for Debate. You can find a link to that on the Berkman website, cyber.law.harvard.edu. Ajunwa's work focuses on how people can be more in control of how their personal lives are recorded and how that data is used. But how do the citizens of the internet make digital locations their own? EVE Online is a massive multiplayer online role-playing game with over half a million players. Radio Berkman's Elizabeth Gillis spoke with Alina Chia, who is looking at EVE Online's unique system of participatory governance. Well, my name is Alina, Alina Chia, and um, I'm a PhD candidate at Indiana University. Um, I'm interning this summer at Microsoft Research, and what I'm studying is this online game called EVE Online, right? And what's interesting to me about this massively multiplayer online game is that there's this player council within the game that has been democratically elected by the player base, right? The voting turnout is about 10%, and uh, people who are involved in the quote-unquote politics of EVE are really involved. And what they want are sort of, you know, more decision-making power in the game, so could you just step back and explain what is 
Eve. What is Eve? Okay, so... so could you kind of, like, describe what it's like? Do you play it yourself? I do play it. I'm not a hardcore player, but I do play Eve just to get a sense of what it's like on the ground, and then I try and move on to the overall systemic level. Okay. So uh, it is a science fiction game, futuristic science fiction game. Some people see it as a dystopia. Some people see it as a utopia. But the idea is that governments are gone. So these are corporations, and they're literally called corporations. So instead of guilds, right, and other kinds of uh, MMOs, you'll be called guilds. We have corporations that, um, that you know, engage in warfare. They engage in, you know, in, um, in espionage, you know, in trading, in mining. It's a very vibrant economy, right? And the economy, for the most part, is not really controlled, Right. They make tweaks here and there, but they always justify it in terms of what's good for the game system as a whole, what's good for the ecology of the game, and uh, what game designers call game balance. Right. Interesting. So when you're electing, are you electing like boards of directors for the corporations? or They're called council members, and this is really interesting to me as a media scholar, because you know media scholars are always thinking, okay, we've got the game system, we have the game content or fiction world, and then we have the player community. So what's happening here is that the council, they are elected within the fiction of the world itself. Right. Also, they exist outside of the game, in the player community. They meet maybe four times a year in person at these summits in Iceland, because the company is Icelandic. The idea is for them to be a sounding board for when developers are conceptualizing different mechanical changes in the game. Right? What kind of tweaks can we make? Is this a terrible mistake? Will like 50% of the, uh, of the player base rage quit because of this? Because it has happened before. Was the council created right from the beginning, or was it something that evolved after the game was developed? It, was, uh, it evolved after the game was developed. Uh, the very first one, uh, it was kind of like a focus group of super users, so it wasn't democratically elected. And it, I, I suppose, in a way, it does serve its purposes as a focus group, but because EVE has so many different pockets of play styles... Right? There are many different ways to play Eve. You could live in a wormhole. You could just play the narrative. Right? You could be very involved as a role player, or you, know, you could be a scammer. So all these different groups needed to be represented in a way for the game to gather as much user feedback as possible. And also, there was one incident in the game where a developer was uh, accused of cheating, and they needed a player body who had signed a non-disclosure agreement to mediate this, uh, this situation and also to placate the, uh, the player base. So they had to you know, get the, the council to say, trust us, everything was kosher. Right. And so the council, they're not necessarily the, the developers. No, they're not. And that is, uh, that is a misconception that a lot of the player base has. They think that, oh, you know, participatory design, but it's not so much that way. Right. Um, the design is still being done by developers. Exactly. And in fact, when they vote, it's taken you know, under advisement. There is no decision-making power here. However, when I do interview developers, they always say it is always makes sense to listen to what this council has to say, that if we take into account what they've said, it will always in some way be beneficial for the business model overall. Right. And what do you hope to kind of get from this research? What, I mean, what are you looking for? What are your goals? I'm not a political scientist. So for me, you know, the goal of this research is not to think about democracy in society or, or, um, or politics of a big P, right? I'm thinking about politics of a small P. What does it mean to be a consumer in this day and age, right? They talk about players, they talk about users, but at the bottom line, this is a business exchange between customers 
and vendors, if you will. And let's not, let's not, you know, let's not fool ourselves that it's something different. Right. So I've been very inspired not just by, uh, by research within the media studies field, but also in marketing studies, right, uh, which have a different perspective, but are a lot more cognizant of the underlying systems beneath the rhetoric that's going on about user empowerment or, uh, or democracy. My big question is, how do consumers interpret what it means to consume? How does being a consumer then change? Right, that's so interesting. Thank you. Alina Chia is a PhD candidate at Indiana University, studying how players govern an online game called Eve Online. Now, it may not make sense to elect a board to oversee every online community, but what then are the alternatives? Nathan Matias studies online platforms like Wikipedia and Reddit to understand how users interact with a space that's so dependent on their involvement. Users create everything that appears on a subreddit chain or a Wikipedia page. They determine what they want to discuss. Just recently, Reddit banned certain subreddits under new anti-harassment rules, an action that was much needed, but demonstrated that users don't really have the final say on the rules of the platform. I spoke with Nathan Matias, who was looking at the nuanced relationship between users of a platform, the platform itself, and the public. Often when we're upset about something that a corporation does, we can imagine a few really straightforward and common responses. Maybe you can boycott. Maybe you start a change.org petition. Maybe you try to reach out to regulators. But people often stumble when trying to figure out what to do when Wikipedia has done something or Wikipedians have done something that they feel is wrong or unfair. Sometimes they start petitions to Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, who doesn't have that much day-to-day influence over the foundation or even over the thousands of contributors all over the world. Sometimes they'll write op-eds and try to convince Wikipedians to change how they do things. And occasionally, journalists, in their kind of classic role of accountability, will try to dive into the inner workings of Wikipedia's uh, different arbitration and moderation practices. And we're only recently starting to see journalists come to a greater understanding of how things actually work. And what have you been looking at, or what are you looking at this summer with your work with Microsoft Research? This summer, I am looking at two questions related to uh, accountability online. I'm looking at uh, puzzles around how the public makes sense of Wikipedia and how it tries sometimes uh, to hold Wikipedia accountable for decisions made by its editors and communities. I'm also looking at the work of moderators on Reddit who play this immensely large role of promoting community, establishing and maintaining norms, and uh, maintaining most of community on the site. What is it that interests you about how these communities operate and how their, their users and the public perceive them? On Reddit or on you know, many other commercial platforms, we tend to think of companies as holding power. But in Reddit's case, uh, much of the power over who gets to stay in the community, who gets moderated, what comments stay, get deleted, uh, much of that power is held by 
moderators of the thousands and thousands of subreddits across the site. And as we have debates about online harassment on sites like Twitter, which have more control over what their moderators do, I'm interested in understanding not only what it means to be a volunteer doing this work, but also why people do this and why they care so much about the communities they invest so much time in. You cite an interesting example in the case of Wikipedia where there was a recategorization of a group of female authors, having them taken away from American authors and put into a group called American women authors. And it's interesting that uh, a debate got sparked up over that on Wikipedia. It, it seems like it's a microcosm of a larger social conversation, and Wikipedia happened to be the locus of it. People often point to the reciprocal relationship between the media and society and how we actually see ourselves and act. And for that reason, there's a lot of activism around what appears in our newspapers, what appears in our films, and Wikipedia is no, no exception to that. So when novelists noticed that they were getting recategorized, they were upset. They rightly worried that by shuffling off women to a category other than novelists, uh, they might be less visible, and that it would be more about more than just their own careers, that it would shape how Wikipedia readers see the role of women in our literary world. Sometimes the best way to change things is to join and contribute. Peer production communities like Wikipedia allow far more mechanisms for change than your typical corporation. You don't have to pressure the top all the time, even though sometimes that may feel like what's most important. Sometimes it's important enough just to find a way to contribute. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Nathan Matias is a Berkman Fellow and a PhD candidate at the MIT Center for Civic Media. He researches user control over sites where the content is largely user-generated. Specifically, Matias studies sites like Wikipedia and Reddit, where, for example, users upvote what they think is the best content. On other platforms like Twitter and Facebook, while you may see content determined by you, there's another factor contributing to what appears in your newsfeed and to what's trending. Stacy Blasiola studies how users understand this hidden deciding factor, the algorithm. Radio Berkman's Elizabeth Gillis spoke with Blasiola. Your research here is mostly focusing on Facebook, entirely focusing on Facebook? It is. My larger dissertation work focuses more on any type of platform that's using an algorithm, but uh, primarily Google, Twitter, Facebook. Overall, I look more at how the information that is available in the world is, is given to us. Whatever type of information, whether it's which of your friends are going out on Friday night or, you know, which politician to vote for in the next election, when we go to get information about that, we turn to these spaces that are mediated by algorithms. And by virtue of returning us some results, they're necessarily not returning us others. Previous research has shown that you, Facebook users in particular, if someone stops appearing in their newsfeed, they just assume that that person doesn't like them, that they might have blocked them. And what they don't know is that, well, it might just be that the, the algorithm has detected that it doesn't think you're as close as maybe you are, so they stop showing them to you. Um, I run into this, it's, it's kind of 
have a running joke in my family. My husband's posts don't show up in my newsfeed. So we have a joke about it. We tried to, you know, you like my stuff and I'll like your stuff and maybe we can get you to appear. And we're trying to figure out how to tell Facebook, like, I want to see this, you know, this person's post. We have an understanding of what's going on. But some people, when someone disappears, you know, they, they might feel hurt by that because they don't understand what's happening. In a series of videos that Facebook released, there's a back and forth engagement between Facebook and users. So I'll be examining those to kind of look at how the, the company positions the newsfeed and how users position the newsfeed in their lives. Could, sorry, could you kind of explain what you're seeing when you're watching one of these videos? Sure. So when you watch one of these videos, they take uh, what's supposed to be you know a typical Facebook user, and they speak about how they tailored their newsfeed. So um, one instance is a user who says, um, I'm a vegan, and so I started reading vegan stories on Facebook and liking vegan products and following people who are also vegans, and now my feed is primarily what I want to see, and it, it's this healthy lifestyle that I want, and now I have this perfect newsfeed. As we know, it's not quite that simple when we're using Facebook. I think a lot of people use it for multiple reasons, and so it's not so easy to just tailor a newsfeed for one purpose. And with your research, it's more about not exactly hacking the algorithm, but just seeing how Facebook responds to the comments. Sure. The research I'm doing... Um, here while I'm with Microsoft Research this summer is looking at the discourse that happens between the company and the users. So what's interesting about this data set is that these videos were posted and then for about a week after they were posted, whenever a user made a comment, Facebook or a representative of Facebook made a reply to the comment. And when you, when you look at these in comparison to when they are speaking to their marketers, there's a very big difference between the way that they refer to themselves or to the algorithm, or to the newsfeed. So when they're talking to marketers, they'll say, we do this. We want things that are relevant. So we look at what your audience is clicking on and what they like and what their friends like, and then we show them content that might be your company's content. But when they're talking to just individual users, they say things like, your newsfeed is this way because you and your friends like this content and your friends have clicked on this stuff and you have shown us. And so they're really, there's this interesting removal of responsibility uh, from what's happening in the newsfeed. Right. And why does that discourse matter? Why does that difference matter? The way that we find that people make sense of the, our daily lives is um, is influenced by the way that we talk about the things in our lives. So when we think of an you know, algorithm as one thing that we can tweak, that's a way of thinking about it that isn't necessarily accurate. But most importantly, what you see from a lot of the comments that I've, that I've looked at so far is users are unaware that there's any type of mediation happening whatsoever. So when you take something like newsfeed and you call it, you say, we're going to show you the information that's important to you. Users might think, well, I know what information is important to me. So I'm expecting that that is the information that you'll show me because that's what I think is important. And Facebook, on the other hand, has a different metric for what's important or relevant is, is, the, is the term that's used the most. And so these lead to misunderstandings when people use these products they expect them to function one way, and they don't. And this is oftentimes largely a result of discourse. And so when they don't function the way they want, and Facebook is saying, well, this is newsfeed created by you, then as a user, the responsibility is put back onto you, and we get to avoid questions of, well, what should it do? How should it function? What is your role in, in the way that it does function? And so that's what this type of discourse analysis kind of seeks to kind of unearth is, is where where's the responsibility placed? You know, I don't feel that I know how a newsfeed should function, but I sure would like to know how it does and how users understand it too um, before we start getting into those questions of, of how should it. Right, and that's interesting. It just makes me think, does Facebook change 
how we view our social lives and how we view our social interactions. Right. And and so there's there can be a tendency sometimes to put technology as like the driver of, of change and the driver of social order. And what discourse does is kind of take a step back from that as technology as this thing that you can't really wrap your hands around and actually try to wrap your hands around it and say, well, wait a minute, these are decisions that go into these designs and these designs afford certain behaviors. And let's look at those before we get um, kind of mystified by the technology that's sweeping us away. But on the one hand, I'm a believer in in the theory that we as a society, we, we shape technology and in turn technology can shape us. And so that's what my research kind of looks at is that interplay. It's reflexive. It's back and forth, you know, um, between here's these tools. Here's how we integrate them into our lives. Here's how we negotiate and challenge those. And you see a lot of challenging going on in the comments and people saying, I don't want it to work like this. Um, so that's, that's really of interest to me is how people push back and then try to reshape the technologies that they're using. Stacey Blasiola is a National Science Foundation fellow studying electronic security and privacy and a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Chicago studying how users understand their Facebook feed. You can find out a lot more about all of today's guests at our website, cyber.law.harvard.edu. Radio Berkman was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and written and edited by Elizabeth Gillis, with oversight from Gretchen Weber from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts.